0: Hi there, I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week, designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening for the week of June 19th, 2023. In the news. For years, there's been simmering anger over a Saudi Arabian dairy company using Arizona's groundwater to grow alfalfa here and ship it back to the Middle East. As the state's water crisis has deepened, that anger is now boiling over, with cries from residents, local officials, and state leaders to intervene. While the laws in place limit what can be done, many Arizonans are wondering how an international search for water ever led to the bone dry Southwest in the first place. Greg Hani reports.
1: In La Paz County, near the state's western border, an alfalfa farm lies a few miles from Interstate 10 and U.S. 60. It's become one of the epicenters of Arizona's water crisis, in part because there's no limit on how much groundwater the farm can use, and in part because the precious water from one desert is being used to feed cattle in another halfway around the world. It goes back to 2011 when the Saudi agriculture giant Al acquired an Argentinian company called Fondamante. A few years later, in 2014, a subsidiary, Fondamonte Arizona, purchased the La Paz County land. But the ties between Arizona and the Arabian Peninsula date back to the 1940s. It's
2: a long set of relationships largely connected to desert agriculture, um, but a number of other broader broader types of political, ecological, scientific uh, ties that bind the two places.
1: That is Syracuse professor Natalie Koch, who says the land in La Paz County was already being used by a local farmer before the Fondamonte Purchase.
2: But they were able to... Apply for a number of new well permits and then basically increase the alfalfa production on that same site because they were able to just pump more water.
1: There's no limit on how much can be pumped there because Arizona regulates only urban areas. Fondamonte's water use has drawn outrage from local residents and elected officials, including Attorney General Chris Mays. Yeah.
3: Arizona groundwater for that and sending the alfalfa back to, to uh, Saudi Arabia. And, you know, obviously I am very opposed to this use of
4: Arizona's water.
1: Mays flagged discrepancies in the company's paperwork, leading to state officials recently revoking, at least temporarily, Fondamonte's permission to drill two new wells. She made water security one of her top talking points in her 2022 campaign.
3: Well, fundamentally, we need to overhaul our groundwater laws so that these kinds of deals and these kinds of wells don't happen again. Um, We have to update the 1980 Groundwater Act.
1: Groundwater, which can take thousands of years to accumulate, is not considered a renewable resource. Aquifers can be replenished through natural processes, the problem, according to ASU professor Tiang Feng Shu, is that they cannot be replenished fast enough.
2: It's like a you know saving account, right? We have been working hard to save money over the thousands of years. Uh, but maybe we're saving like $10 for each year for 1,000 years. But right now we're like withdrawing money at a rate of $100 or even $1,000 every year. So it won't take much long for the saving account to be become overdrafted.
1: And overdrafting affects more than just water. Fondamonte's farmland has sunk nearly 10 inches in the last 13 years.
2: So like uh, squeezing a sponge, right? And as we squeeze that sponge, we're reducing the volume of the aquifer. And some reduction in volume is not reversible.
1: Koch, the Syracuse professor, says Arizona can learn from Saudi Arabia.
2: You had the farming uh, in Saudi Arabia getting to a crisis point where the government essentially said, oh, wait, we can't do this anymore. Um, And I think that Arizona is kind of on that cusp of realizing that they also can't do that.
1: There's a lot of anger directed at Fondamonte and Saudi Arabia. But Koch says the real problem is Arizona's inability to regulate its own resources.
2: There is a bigger structural problem with the way that the Saudi company is able to exploit Arizona's outdated water regulations, which mean that they are not being charged for the groundwater that they are pumping.
1: This month, Arizona officials announced new restrictions on housing construction on the fringes of Phoenix due to the lack of guaranteed water supply but that's within an urban management area. For rural Arizona, there is currently little that can be done. Greg Hawney, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: Also in the news, a year after Roe v. Wade was overturned, patients seeking abortions in Arizona are facing longer wait times and added barriers for appointments, according to the state's largest abortion provider. Catherine Davis Young reports.
5: After the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, abortions after 15 weeks gestation became illegal in Arizona. Dr. Jill Gibson with Planned Parenthood Arizona says even though the majority of abortions happen earlier than that, the new law has impacted many of her patients. Certainly on a weekly basis, we're sending multiple patients to California to get the care that they need beyond 15 weeks. And as some Arizona patients head to California, Gibson says she's also now treating an influx of patients who come to Arizona from states where abortion has been totally banned. That's causing longer wait times for appointments since the organization is still struggling to fill staff vacancies, says CEO Brittany Fontenot. There is a brain drain that is
0: happening. You have nurses and doctors who have left the state to go to friendlier
5: environments. Planned Parenthood's Flagstaff clinic is not currently providing abortion services due to staffing shortages, but Fontenot says the organization is planning to launch a mobile clinic later this year to serve other areas of the state. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news. Copper is among the alliterated
0: nouns that made Arizona's economic foundation with cattle, cotton, and citrus. In the 1950s, a master-planned community was built near the Pinal and Pima County line in southeast Arizona just for copper workers and their families. San Manuel saw its mine closed decades ago. Now, marijuana growers are trying to make it a company town once more, Matthew Casey reports.
1: Two huge
6: smelter stacks once stood for San Manuel's existence in the San Pedro River Valley, but a nearby copper mine suddenly closed and home video recorded people's reactions as the town's identifying features were demolished.
1: Oh no. Oh no.
6: The smelter stacks fall in unison and then simultaneously break in half before hitting the ground with them and the mine, went good jobs that were why San Manuel was even built. Today, marijuana is replacing the old smelter stacks as a symbol of local industry. Our plan is to give you a tour along the plant's life cycle from start to finish. The chief cultivation officer for the flower shop AZ leads reporters on a tour of a huge indoor grow operation in San Manuel. KJZZ News met brothers who moved to this once prosperous mining town to work in the often loud environment of raising and harvesting cannabis. Irrigation systems and high powered lights churn a constant background roar in the cavernous marijuana grow rooms. Depending on the growth stage, these rooms are either warm and humid or cool and dry. Andrew Garcia works in one of the hot rooms, cutting clones. Uh, right now we're taking exact uh, copies of the mother plant itself, and we're gonna multiply that. The strain of this mother plant is nutter butter, in case you're wondering. Garcia says for the last six months, he shared a house with his older brother about 15 minutes from work. How's life inside, Simon? Well, um, it's, how would I to describe, it's very peaceful. It's yeah. very open. Yeah, it's like the perfect place to do this. In San Manuel, the 21-year-old says he's found a door into the industry he wants to work in and a great place to go dirt biking, a favorite hobby. How long does he plan to stay? A pretty long while, to be honest with you. I kinda like a lot where I live and what I'm doing, so I don't really see any reason to leave. Sure, it's far away from like the cities and stuff, but I've been in the cities, so. It's not hard to pick out Garcia's brother, Benjamin, in one of the cool rooms where ready-to-be-sold marijuana is sorted and packaged. The siblings look almost exactly alike. If I uh, got here almost a year ago, it's was a really good opportunity. He kind of likes more or less the same things I do, so I was like, hey, come give this a shot. Benjamin also likes the quiet of living in San Manuel and not having a long work commute. A neighbor even gives the brothers eggs in exchange for helping with farm work. You know, you learn independence when you live in a small town. Um, It actually has helped me form bonds with people, you know, that I necessarily wouldn't living in the city. The 26-year-old says he encourages fellow San Manuel residents to come work where he does. Um, I hope to never find another job ever again. (laughs) Not everyone in San Manuel likes the new industry. Lucille Gonzalez moved here in the 1970s. Her husband worked at the copper mine. She remembers how suddenly fortunes changed.
2: Uh, The union hall called us and told us not to show up to work the next day because the mine had closed.
6: Gonzalez says San Manuel was a great place to raise a family, and most left after the mine closed. She opposes marijuana use, says it might be due to her age, and chafes at hearing her home called a cannabis capital.
2: I don't think that it's a good industry to have here
6: long enforced legal and social taboos aside gonzalez says cannabis coming to town also meant losing access to one of her favorite places
2: i'm sad that they've had to enclose the whole property because there was a real nice swimming hole out there that we could go to
6: San Manuel was built to supply labor for a copper mine, but Gonzalez doesn't want to see it become a marijuana company town, even if it means that most people from here don't stay. Matthew Casey, KJZZ News, reporting from San Manuel.
0: And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In education news. Housed in the now-closed 1st Avenue Jail in downtown Phoenix is the MASH Unit. It stands for the Maricopa Animal Safe Haven. Kathy Ritchie takes us inside to meet the people caring for and rehabilitating the dozens of animals who've been rescued by the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office.
7: Alicia Cates has been working at the MCSO MASH Unit for about six months.
3: I take care of the animals. We feed them. We clean up after their potty breaks. We socialize them. Uh, But the most important part, I feel, is we rehabilitate them to find them their forever homes.
7: Kates isn't in law enforcement, nor is she a veterinarian or a vet tech. She's serving a year-long jail sentence, and what she's doing here will hopefully give her marketable skills to do this kind of work when she's released in about five and a half months.
3: This is Cyrus. We call him Cyrus the Virus, but,
7: you know, this is our potato. Kates has been working with Cyrus, a wide-eyed older pit bull, to socialize and rehabilitate
3: him. Cyrus, he's come a long way. Um, he was initially very toy aggressive, very in-your-face. Um, he's no longer toy aggressive.
7: An animal trainer comes to MASH weekly to help inmates like Kates with the rehab process. It takes time and plenty of patience.
3: Yeah, and as you can see, um, pulling. I know when I came out, he was really rambunctious, but keeping him on this leash, keeping you know, we've we build the trust, to build the bond, to build the respect that we have for each other, and that makes them easily trainable. You know, he he's different, as you can see, within just a matter of five minutes.
7: Cyrus came to Mash from a domestic violence situation. The goal is to get these animals to the point where they can finally be adopted, but it's not always easy back to cyrus
8: now we've had a couple people interested but it's always his age and he doesn't get along with the other dogs but loves people great with people
7: that's sergeant terrell chalene he's a program supervisor at mash so he oversees kates and the other inmates here on this day chalene says most inmates don't really know what to expect when they first come here but for many of them including kates who was convicted of manslaughter in 2021
3: this work is transformational i believe that i I asked why I was here, why God put me here, and um, I found my purpose in life
8: here at MASH. They're rehabilitating themselves while they're rehabilitating the animals as well, and that's pretty much what the program was designed for.
7: The MASH unit has been housing abused and neglected animals since roughly 2000. The former jail can hold more than 100 animals, animals that have been seized as evidence, or are here because their owner is deceased and there's no next of kin. Sergeant Paul Taylor has been at MASH for a little more
1: than three years. Right now, we've got 43 dogs and 69 cats.
7: Not too bad,
1: actually. We've been as high as about 285 animals at one time. And that's cats, dogs, we've had birds, we've had lizards, we've had snakes.
7: And often, these animals come to MASH in rough
1: shape. They are usually coming from, in many cases, very deplorable situations. Uh, hoarding cases are you know, one of the you know, common ones that we see.
7: Then there are the cases of physical abuse, which can be especially challenging because the animal might be more reactive, which means tougher to rehabilitate. It's actually one of the reasons why female inmates work here.
8: Because most abusers are males. So for if it's male aggression, that's something we really have to work on.
7: That's Sergeant Shaleen again. From there, it's really baby steps. They try and identify what triggers the animal. Once that's determined, it's a matter of desensitizing them to that trigger.
1: Here's Sergeant Taylor. And we have to basically overcome the barrier of them not having trust in us. And, you know, it's a you know process that takes time.
7: The good news is many of these animals are finding their forever home, as Kate's put it. But animal abuse and neglect is a growing problem, Shaleen says.
8: And it's almost tripled every year. Since about 2000. Yep, animal abuse cases like that, absolutely, and it's also, it's also in conjunction with the valley growing, more people moving here. So as the population goes up, we're starting to see more crimes like that as
3: well.
7: For Kate's, her time here at Mash will soon come to an end, but life after a felony conviction can be difficult. So what's next for her?
3: My goal is to get out and hopefully open up my own animal sanctuary where I can open up jobs for other felons like myself um, and hopes to change both not only an animal's future, but the future of a felon.
7: Kathy Ritchie, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: Now here's a story from the new series on the show called Collections, and it's
7: devoted to the things we acquire and treasure. Joe Weaver's antique shop on North Central Avenue is filled with all kinds of old things, but mostly lamps. Hundreds of them, all rare and restored by Weaver himself. He's had the store and a thing for lamps for nearly 50 years, but says he's getting ready to close up shop very soon
9: now. Originally, what I pretty much had was lamps, fixtures, and stained glass windows. I was sort of inventing lighting, and some real avant-garde designs and whatnot. And then I bought some antique fixtures and just was fascinated with the restoration and repair and whatnot. And then that just overwhelmed my interest. What I'm really searching for is the rare, rare, and unusual, Like, like you see here. Oh boy, there are just so many different types of fixtures. You know, here's the Art Deco style called a slipper shade and I've got you know a bunch of those and then I've got some earlier this is a transition piece when this was made it was half gas and half electric and because they were having trouble selling electric lamps to everyone that was all set up with gas so that that's an interesting piece this is an Italian Capa di Monte very rare All metal is all bronze. These, this is a Tudor style that was popular all across the country. Where they kind of become like children, you know. Each one has its own merit. Tiffany is just the most sought after. It's just, and it, it should be. It's the very finest. It's unbelievably well done. Yeah, in every respect, you know. Entry level Tiffany, twenty-five, thirty thousand. The record right now is over two million for a Tiffany lamp. <laughs> when I started in this business, the record was 125,000. Wow. And Tiffany is almost like buying a Ferrari and just parking it, and wait till it goes up another million. <laughs> you know, it's really, really unbelievable. You know, lots of times people will come in and say, "Oh, my grandmother had a Tiffany lamp." No, she didn't. Grandpa was a farmer, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah no, they couldn't afford a Tiffany. I don't do any business on eBay. The local customers have kept me in business all these years. What about the uh, rumor
4: that you are closing?
9: Yes, yes, my wife is um, going to have some issues regarding her spine. It's deteriorating, and so we're watching the progress of that, and I, I want to be able to be of some help so that uh, she can continue as normal as possible. We don't know what the progression is going to be, and so it it could be a year or so, or it could be next month, you know. It's not like I'm stumbling all over myself to get out of here, you know, (laughs) I'm working at it, but but this has been a lifetime venture.
4: That was Joe Weaver
7: talking about the hundreds of lamps at his antique shop, Stuff Antiques. This is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast.
0: In science news, here's Nicholas Gerbis.
4: Groundwater has weighed heavily in the balance of policies regarding drought, tribal rights, and land development. Now, a paper in Geophysical Research Letters suggests groundwater pumping is knocking the earth itself slightly off balance. Over tens of thousands of years, Earth wobbles like a lopsided top, partly because of its weight being redistributed by its molten core, melting ice sheets, swirling ocean currents, and, apparently, groundwater pumping. Between 1993 and 2010, the shift caused by such activities far outstripped the effects of water melting from ice sheets. That's according to a model validated by millimeter-scale satellite measurements of polar shift. The effect was likely amplified by an unbalancing bias in where pumping occurs, mainly the northern hemisphere's mid-latitudes in places like India and Arizona. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: In tribal resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. In a 5-4 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that the federal government does not have to take affirmative steps to secure water for the Navajo Nation. Greg Hani reports.
1: The Navajo Nation had sued the federal government, saying a treaty from 1868 compelled the U.S. to take such water security measures for the tribe. Arizona, Nevada, and Colorado intervened against the tribe in an attempt to protect their interests in Colorado River water. In writing the opinion for the high court, Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote that nothing in that 1800s treaty established a trust relationship in respect to water. Kavanaugh added that Congress may enact legislation to address Navajo Nation water needs, but that the court did not have a role to play. The ruling reverses an appellate court's decision. Greg Haney, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: And finally, in Fronteras News. A black bear that killed a 66-year-old man near Prescott last week was unprovoked when it attacked, and official necropsy has found. Michelle Morisco reports.
1: An Arizona Game and Fish veterinarian examined the black bear. She found that the 7- to 10-year-old male bear was in good health, weighed 365 pounds, and was in good nutritional condition. The examination found human remains in the bear's stomach. The bear also tested negative for rabies. State officials said only one bear in more than 50 years has tested positive for rabies in Arizona. They concluded the attack was an unprovoked predatory one. The bear died of multiple gunshot wounds. A neighbor shot it with a rifle as it attacked Stephen Jackson in the Groom Creek area of Prescott National Forest last Friday. Michel Marisco,
4: KJZZ News, Flagstaff.